0: At this time, I'm going to dismiss our children, any children that want to go to children's worship. Uh, they can c- collect right back there at that door and uh, they can head off to children's worship where they will have a great time, no doubt, and uh, have a lesson at their age level and have a good time. So I'm actually a little jealous because some of those things that they do in there seem pretty fun. They sing a lot, and in here you can't hear me sing, and there you'd be able to hear me sing probably, and that'd be bad for everybody all the way around. So, uh, The rest of you that are in here, go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to spend the morning in verses uh, 15 through 28, I know that's kind of a big section, and if you were not here last week with us, uh, I just want to encourage you to go to our website, it's If you're watching online or here, it's hopeofdixon.com, and there you can find audio recordings um, of the message from last week, as well as all of um, a lot of our other messages. Uh, And this week's message, though, is kind of a sequel. It's a little bit of a sequel to last week, almost like a part two to last week. So if you missed out last week, I would encourage you to go listen to that, or you can go to your podcast app and find us on the podcast feed and listen to it while you're, I don't know, going for a walk or whatever. But... um, You know, for 2,000 years, Christianity has been known as a bloody religion. I don't know if you know that or not. But blood has always had a prominent and important place in Christianity. Now, if you've been a Christian for some time, you're like, well, yes, of course, Jesus' blood shed on the cross for our sins. And we remember that through the Lord's Supper, right, through drinking of the cup. And we remember his blood shed. You know, I can remember a man in one of my churches that I served in, uh, this guy 's name, not kidding, his name was Jack daniels and uh, which which I think I was back when like the your your cell phone would ring and it would say so and so calling and be like Jack Daniels calling It was kind of a weird thing anyway uh, but uh jack who's, who's who's a great guy, and uh his wife 's name is Jackie this hundred percent true Jack and Jackie Daniels. But anyway, Jack would tell me stories about um, when he would go, was going to this little Baptist church in a small town and they would sing what he referred to as the bloody three. They'd sing the bloody three. And it was three hymns that I think they sung together like in in a set almost all the time. And I think the names of them, I think the ones it was, was uh, what can wash away my sin. There's power in the blood that has to be said like that power. There's no E there power. There's power in the blood, and there is a fountain filled with blood. And call them the Bloody Three. These and many other songs like them, throughout hundreds and hundreds of years of Christian tradition, have been sung in worship by many, many, many Christians. However, in the last several years, there's been a movement in more liberal circles to remove some of the more, uh, shall we say, uncomfortable occurrences of blood and the theme of blood from some of the songs and verbiage from some of the churches. In fact, some uh, hymnals have removed things about blood, things about God's wrath, songs about those things that are biblical truths, and yet they, they're a little uncomfortable for the modern ear, and so they've removed them. The problem with that is that it, it gives us an impoverished telling of the gospel. It gives us an incomplete account of the gospel. It's not just important that Jesus died for your sin, but it's greatly important the way that Jesus paid for your sins. Al Muller words it like this, how Christ achieves our redemption more fully demonstrates the glory of God. We can't honor, appreciate, and worship God for what he has done for us unless we understand what it cost to achieve our salvation. Now, in the first half of chapter 9 that we covered last week, the writer of Hebrews explained that because of the new covenant and Jesus' work of salvation, we who have trusted in Christ have been called to him. We get full access to God. We don't have to go through a priest, but can enter straight into the holy place where previously we would have been forbidden to go. But now we can go to God because we have a mediator who shed his own blood, to seal this new covenant. And that is what we're going to unpack a little bit this morning. What did the inauguration of the new covenant look like? And what did Jesus go through as our mediator, to be our mediator? And what did he purchase as an eternal inheritance for his followers? And we're going to see if I can pronounce everything correctly, apparently, as well. But let's read the passage together. Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 15 through 28. You can follow along in your copy of the Word of God or on the screens behind me. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For And all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand, believe, and apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, as we have read the truth of your word, help us believe it. Help us take you at your word, even the parts that are difficult for us to understand, the parts that we find hard, the parts that we find uncomfortable. Help us to trust you and believe you and put our entire faith in you Jesus for you alone are the way of salvation help us to know how to apply this word to our lives to change the way we live to make us more like you Jesus grow us in our sanctification father as i as i speak i pray that you would you would just increase and i would decrease that you would be big, that I would be clear, but that you would move me out of the way, and that you would help our hearts understand what you're saying in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, the book of Hebrews, we have been slogging through it for a while now, and we're going to be in it for a while now, but we're getting closer. We're getting closer. The book of Hebrews leads us through understanding the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant and if you'll recall the writer was writing to a group of hebrew christians who were being pressured to drop their newfound faith in jesus and go back to the old covenant jewish ways of worship and ritual and celebration those ways that we found were incapable to save in fact, everything in that old covenant, we said, was pointing forward to Jesus. It was pointing forward to the need for a better sacrifice and a better mediator. It all pointed to Jesus and was eventually completely fulfilled in him. In verse 15, which if, you, if you're thinking, I've heard that before, it's because verse 15 was at the end of the passage that, uh, that we covered last week. I just overlapped by a verse, purposefully, purposefully. But verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And remember what I said, when you start a verse, you start reading a verse and you see the word therefore, you need to figure out what came before it. Because it's saying, because of everything I just said, because of what has just been said, just written, what came before, what comes after? I told you this little thing, that this little kitschy thing that preachers say, right? When you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ask, What's it there for, right? Why did he transition with that transition word in particular? And the idea is because of what came before hinges this truth. And it tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And his mediation ends up with us gaining an eternal inheritance. So we have a mediated eternal inheritance. If you're a note taker, you might write that down. A mediated eternal inheritance. And I know this week, I used lots of big words, okay? That's uh, just how it happened. And I thought about it, and I was like, why? But they're just the words that, they're words that work. And here's why I want to I explain that a little bit. When we talk about this mediated eternal inheritance, I think we need to look at the definition of the word mediator. See, mediator is an interesting word because of our modern use cases for it. You know, if we hear the word mediator, we might lean towards thinking about this word in a different way than someone in the biblical times might have thought of it or might have understood it, or in a different way than the writer of Hebrews uses that word here. We think we know what the word means, so we assume that a mediator is what a mediator would be today, like someone who you call in and they get two people or two opposing sides together. And they try to work out a compromise or some kind of agreement between the two sides that are in conflict, right? Or trying to work out a contract between two companies or something like that. And each side has to give and take and there's a compromise and the mediator is called in to work that out. So an example would be uh, in a war where there's two countries at war and they call in a third country to be the mediator, someone who, to come in and work with both sides and try to get a treaty together. And this person comes in, and in order to bring peace, they look for common ground where the two can come together. Now, here's a big problem with our understanding of that word, the way we use that word today. The problem in this case, big problem, is that there is no common ground between a holy God and sinful humanity. In our sinful state, there's no common ground between us and God. A few years back, I was teaching a Bible class at a high school, and I asked students um, where they would start in explaining God to somebody. Like, where they would start in talking about God. If they were just going to start talking about God with someone, where would they start, and his, specifically his characteristics. And unsurprisingly, they started with God is love. God is loving. God loves us. They started as describing God that way. And to be sure, so hear me, to be sure, God is love. But my instruction to them, my instruction to them was that instead of starting with God is love, to start with God is holy. To start with God is holy, because unless we understand our sin as offensive and separating us from a holy God, then we won't see our need for a savior and the good news that God loves us. So we need to know how bad the situation, how bad of a situation we're in, before the good news will truly sound like good news to us. You know, it's like when you um, you're driving down a street and you see a a sign that says road closed, and so you don't go that way. You turn and you get around the corner and you look back and you see that there's been a giant chasm that's opened up in the road that you didn't see. And so road closed didn't seem like very good news until you found out how bad the situation was if you'd ignored that sign and gone through it. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of that sin is death. And, and our sin, sin cannot be in the presence of holy God. And I think I've shared this explanation before. When I was a kid uh, in youth group and, and, and children's ministry and way back in the day, RAs, if you guys know what Royal Ambassadors is and all of that, um, I used to was taught, it was taught as in, you know, God can't be around sin, as if sin came around and God was like, oh, I can't be around this and I got to get away, you know, that's not how it works. Sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God it'd be obliterated. And so the wages of sin is death and sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Sin must be judged and the wrath of God must be poured out upon it. So we either get the wrath of God for eternity or we have a mediator that stepped in. Our mediator, Jesus, steps in. He steps into the situation and agrees with God that our sin deserves infinite outpouring of his wrath. And he agrees that our sin is ugly and he agrees with the Father that there is a sacrifice needed, that there is blood that must be shed on account of sin. And our mediator puts himself forward as the sacrifice in our place. And he mediates the relationship and reconciles us to God. All on his side of things. We, we didn't have anything to do with it. Jonathan Edwards said the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. According to verse 15, those who God has called, that's the church, will receive a promised eternal inheritance. And this happens because a death has occurred, namely the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And his death Redeems us according to this redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant All of our sin all of our war with god by breaking his commandments Was put on jesus and he took the punishment the wrath for our sin For us so that we could have this eternal inheritance So he could hand us this Eternal inheritance or this eternal redemption so let's look at this idea of our eternal inheritance. In verses 16 and 17, the writer of Hebrews mentions this illustration of a will. He mentions this, this idea of a will. When someone passes away and their inheritance is handed out to who is designated as beneficiary in that said will. Now, the scripture says... That the death of the one must be established for it to take effect. And it's not in effect while the person is still living. That's why it was wild in the story of the prodigal son. Story of the prodigal son that Jesus told. Youngest son goes to his father and asks for his inheritance now. While his dad's still alive. It's almost as if he was saying, you know, I wish you were dead. That's a story for another, another sermon though. But that's why it's so wild about that because the will—a will's not in effect—and we know this, right? Like, if somebody's got a will, it doesn't go into effect until that person's dead, and we know this. In fact, in our system, from what I understand from people who've had to deal with estates and all that stuff, it's not a right away thing either. Sometimes it takes months, maybe years, to work all that stuff out. The Greek word here used to designate a will. So the the Greek word that's used here—it's translated and and. Can, it can designate or it can refer to a will, as we think of a will. A legally binding final directions of a person who's died. But that word can also signify an ancient Near Eastern covenant. It works in, it works in both ways. And this covenant would, would have required a sacrificial animal in order to be put into effect. If you go back and, and you read uh, God's covenant with Abraham... Uh, Abraham sacrifices the animals, cuts them in half and in these old covenants and I won't go through the whole thing but animals were cut in half and then the two people who were agreeing to the size of the covenant would walk between them signifying that if either of us breaks this covenant this whatever's happened to these animals should happen to us okay so when it refers to it could designate a will or the, an ancient near eastern covenant and both of those work, you're going to see in a minute Another place in Hebrews, though, the word is translated, the word here that we get will is translated as covenant. Either of these understandings work because they both only come into force after a death has occurred. And the implication is that the new covenant and our eternal inheritance as followers of Christ was instituted at the time of Christ's death. It was inaugurated. It was instituted. That's where it kicked off, the new covenant. A death had occurred so that the inheritance, the eternal inheritance to the church, would be passed on. The covenant had been sealed by a sacrifice, by blood. We therefore have the inheritance of the present and future benefits of Jesus' saving work. And our present benefits, by the way, there's present benefits. Sometimes we, I think, we think of, well, I follow Jesus, so I get to be in eternity with him. I get to be in heaven for eternity. I get to worship God. I get to have a new body. I get to, you know, we think of all these things, right? But there's actually present (laughs) benefits as well. Our present benefits we have of this eternal inheritance are sanctification, right? Where where Jesus makes us more like him. A relationship with God, prayer, communication with God, service for God, sharing the good news with others, and unity with the body of Christ, the church. These are all benefits we have that we don't have on the other side of the cross. In addition to these, we have eternity with God in heaven that are guaranteed for those whom Jesus has saved. And that guarantee of our eternal redemption and inheritance was sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ because the old covenant blood of animals was not sufficient. It had to be continually offered. Year after year, the high priest had to go with new blood. So we needed a better blood. We needed a better blood. So let's look at the necessity of a better blood. The old covenant, the old covenant did not completely solve the problem of sin in the world. It was insufficient. Scripture tells us that. And we've, uh, we've heard about that in the previous passages. People still committed sin under the Old Covenant. right, The blood of animals was not enough to take away the sin of the people permanently once and for all time. Blood still had a very prominent place in the Old Covenant, as well as it does in the New Covenant. It's just better blood. It's better blood. Remember the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Hopefully you see where this is going. And verse 18 tells us that It was inaugurated with blood. Inaugurated with blood. That not even the old covenant was inaugurated without blood. Covenants were inaugurated with blood. And the reference here would have likely reminded the, remember the initial hearers were, they were Jews, they were Israelite Christians, okay? That reference would have reminded them back to Exodus 24, 4 through 8. And I'm just going to read that passage for you. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The the old covenant system was a bloody mess. (laughs) Really? I mean, uh, when I see depictions of it on TV or whatever... um, they need, it needs to be a lot of blood, because there was a lot of blood. The entire sacrificial system was pointing to the cross of Calvary, where Jesus died and shed his blood as the ultimate sacrifice, which, again, inaugurated the new covenant. And just as Moses, doing this with the people, inaugurated the old covenant. See, why is blood important? Blood is important because it demonstrates the costliness of sin blood having to be shed lets us know that sin's not just some light-hearted thing oops i messed up sin has to cost someone their life sin has to cost something its life even in the old covenant something had to die for sin and it wasn't it wasn't good enough Blood demonstrates the costliness of sin. As the animal would have been slashed and the blood was draining out of it, the Israelites would see that as the life leaving the animal. Sin always costs something. Someone has to pay for it. It will either be you in eternity or Jesus on the cross in your place. But thank God he provided the final and sufficient sacrifice in Jesus Christ. It was sufficient and final. If you're taking notes, you might write that down: the sufficiency and finality of Christ's sacrifice. Because not only was it sufficient for your sin, but it was final for eternity. It didn't have to be redone. So last week I talked about the furniture in the tabernacle and how <coughs> how the furniture, the the, the lampstand showbread or the bread of the presence, how it was but a copy and a shadow of the heavenly holy place or the holy things. The copies of the heavenly things had to be purified with blood, right? We see Moses doing that. They had to be purified with blood but and they were only a copy and a shadow of heavenly realities. In verse 24 we find Christ entered the heavenly place made by God, not by made, not made by human hands. So God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle, and but men built the thing, like like put the stuff together and set it up, right? But Christ entered not into the heavenly place, made, not a place made by human hands, not an earthly tent, but the heavenly place, and He entered it by His own blood because what was going on on earth was just a shadow of what would happen in the eternal, excuse me, in the heavenly realm. And he entered into the holy place by his own blood, not by the blood of uh, an ox or or a bull being shed, but by his own blood shed. And the scripture tells us here he appears in the presence of God on our behalf. So, uh, we get this and now imagine you are in the first audience that ever heard this because i don 't know if you remember at the beginning I said Hebrews at the beginning of the series. This possibly we think may have been a sermon in its initial form may have been a sermon that was then you know was written down and passed around okay. The people hearing this for the first time would were being reminded you don 't need to go back to the shadow you don't need to go back to the copy because you have. A real mediator who sits by his own blood in the presence of God on your behalf as a mediator, as a go-between for you. And you didn't do anything to gain this or to get this. It is the gift of God because he's holy, but he is also love. And he made a way for you to be made right with God that is sufficient, that doesn't have to be redone. He doesn't have to go suffer over and over for eternity But it's once and for all, verse 26, says, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Friends, if that doesn't get you excited, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what will. The phrase, he put away sin. He put it away. It's as if, it's if he said, you know what? You're not needed anymore. You're gone. In the heavenly, holy place at the right hand of God. By his death on the cross, he puts sin away. Now, that doesn't mean we don't still commit sin. We do. Okay? But it's beat. It's beat. The power of sin, the power of death has been defeated, and he proved that by raising from the dead three days after he's crucified. Of this passage, uh, one of my old dead guys, theologian John Calvin, writes this. Moreover, this passage warns us that we receive God's promises only when they are confirmed by the blood of Christ. All God's promises are yea and amen, as Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians one twenty. Only when by the blood of Christ they are inscribed on our hearts as a seal, for we hear God speaking to us only when we see Christ offering himself as a pledge in what is said to us. Now listen close to what he says here. If we could only get it into our heads that the word of God we read is written not so much with ink as with the blood of the son of God or that when the gospel is preached our own blood is is poured with the vo- excuse me, his own blood is poured with the voice we hear we would pay far more attention and that with far greater reverence the sprinkling spoken of by moses was a simple a symbol for the reality which we have just explained i i really like that quote i want to read this part again this this middle se- er, section if we could only get it into our heads i i don't know about you but sometimes i have trouble getting stuff through my thick skull. I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. I'm the only stubborn one in the room. If we could only get it into our heads that the word of God we read is written not so much with ink as with the blood of the Son of God, or that when the gospel is preached, his own blood is poured with the voice we hear. We would pay far more attention and that with far greater reverence if we understood the cost, if we understood what was going on as the gospel is proclaimed, if we understood the the copy and shadow and the reality of what is going on in the heavenly realm how much more would we pay attention and with far greater reverence well where do we go where do we go with this where do we go it's, this passage is deeply theological it, you don't read this and immediately think oh that's what I should do tomorrow you know, that's how I should put that into practice when I go to work it's not one of those Those in Christ have a great eternal inheritance. So let me tell you about this great inheritance one more time. It's not two-sided. It's not two-sided. A will is given unilaterally from the one leaving the inheritance. It's a take it or leave it proposition. You don't get to negotiate the terms. This is a sovereign expression of the will of God. Jesus brought us near to God. He gives us full access to God in relationship with him. And the pressure facing these Hebrew Christians was to go back to their old religious ways. And it may have appealed to them because it was known to them. It was probably easier than facing persecution for following Christ. Yet the author of Hebrews presents to them verse after verse of reasons why Jesus is better. And you don't need those old covenant ways because Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and sealed the new covenant by his own blood. Friends, I want you to write this statement down if you're a note taker. Religious practices without heart change do not redeem. Religious practices without heart change do not redeem. You can do all the ritual can do all the things but if you have not been changed by the blood of Christ it doesn't redeem all the blood of animals all the ritual was not enough to redeem the people eternally only the blood of Christ would do it the ritual the purification ritual was, it was external the problem was the heart of the people Friends, the problem is our hearts. The problem is our hearts. Sometimes we try and save ourselves or we make ourselves more presentable to God by doing more and more and more. We think we can. We try all kinds of things because it seems too simple for us to just say, Jesus has sealed it. It's harder to trust than it is to do. Even though we know that our doing will never be perfect, it's not good enough, we'd say, yes, I'm saved only by the blood of Christ, and yet we still try and do to somehow, like, make God happier with us or something. Yet we still try because, again, we find it easier to do religious ritual instead of trusting Jesus. As I head towards the end here. I'm going to invite our musicians to come back up to the stage and get ready to play. We have something else in here. In verse 28, we have a guarantee. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We have a guarantee that Jesus is coming back. And friends, I don't know what your end times beliefs are about when and where and all of that. But I will promise you this. Jesus' return is closer today than it was yesterday. And it's closer now than when I just said that. We have a guarantee that Christ will return for those eagerly waiting for him. He will return for his church. We have that guarantee. So, understanding the price that was paid, understanding the blood, what does that say? And knowing that Jesus is coming, and coming soon, what does that say about what we should be doing? How we should be living our lives, what we should be about? I don't think that it means we should be sitting in a bunker with a bunch of canned food and rifles. Although there's some days that sounds pretty good. I don't think that's what it means, though. We must be serving God. We must be sharing this hope of the gospel with as many people as we can because the days are evil. We should be living every day as if it could be our last and living every day as if it could be the last. Because it might just not just be the last, your last day, it might be the last day at any point. We should build our lives on the gospel and not on material things or religious activity. Look, there are things that followers of Christ should be doing, okay? The, the, the Bible is very clear that people who follow Jesus ought to be obeying his commands, okay? There are things we should be doing. We should be coming to church regularly to worship with brothers and sisters, okay? And we're going to get into that later on in Hebrews, actually. We should be giving obediently and generously. We should be making disciples, but all of that stuff, even though that stuff we should be doing, is not what saves you. It's not what redeems you. Without the blood of Jesus, it's just religious activity that does not redeem. Only the blood shed on the cross in the place of sinners as a substitute, and Jesus Christ risen again, only that is life Changing. You're building your life on anything else, it'll sink. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can my sin erase, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of works, tis all of grace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You, you, can't, you can't get there without the bloodshed. Would you stand and pray with me? God, as we come to this time of uh, worship through song, once again, God, I pray that the message of your word would just weigh on our hearts, that it would set us free from our empty religious activity, set us free to serve you out of knowing that it is finished, that that the blood has been shed, that your blood has been shed, and our way has been made. That eternal inheritance is ours in you and you alone, Jesus. And that we can freely serve you without having to worry about trying to do all of the right things. But we can live under grace, not law. Help us to trust you fully, Jesus. Help us to take you at your word that what you say in Hebrews is true us to trust you with our lives and with every aspect therein move in our hearts as we sing god if there's anyone here who's never met you who's never believed the gospel i pray they would reach out this week or later today that they would get a hold of me or uh, one of our leaders and our, our the friend they came to church with or whoever and that they would seek to know you jesus that today would be their day of salvation. God, for those of us who know you and love you, help us to, to just be continually sharpened and made more into your image, Jesus. Help us not fight against the work of sanctification, but to dive in with you fully and freely whenever we have opportunity to grow. Thank you, Lord God. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you sing one final time with us?